Welcome to today's conversation in our Collaborative Transformation Podcast Series, Driving the Deal, Focus on Private Equity Investments in Healthcare and Life Sciences. My name is Chris Whirling. I'm a transactions lawyer focused on healthcare and life sciences deals and serve as co-chair of McDermott's Global Private Equity Practice. Our team advises clients throughout the life cycle of an investment from leading the initial acquisition to serving as trusted counsel for the portfolio company's ongoing business and eventual sale. We also bring deep industry expertise to our private equity clients in the healthcare space and have been recognized as the top healthcare private equity law firm in the United States. As a result, we interact regularly with other leaders from across the industry. And in this podcast series, I'm excited to bring you into these conversations so you can hear firsthand from some of the key figures across healthcare private equity. Today, we have two guests joining us from Harris Williams. Chairs Porter and Jeff Smith are both managing directors leading the healthcare and life sciences groups at Harris Williams. Chairs and Jeff, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Having us, Chris. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Jeff. How did you get to Harris Williams and how did you get involved in healthcare and life sciences banking? Well, so I joined Harris Williams 17 years ago, actually straight out of business school where I got my MBA at MIT Sloan and then was thinking about what I wanted to do after that and got introduced to some of the folks at the firm and was really interested in the model and, and what they were doing. Joined the firm as a generalist associate. And at the time we had one industry group, which was the healthcare and life sciences group, which was comprised of, I think, two people at the time. And despite being a generalist, I had the opportunity to work on a number of different healthcare transactions, including working with chairs on a bunch of stuff and, and some others. And after a couple of years, was asked to join the group on a full-time basis and have been doing that ever since. So it's been a fun run. And we've gone from, I think, four when I joined the group to almost 50 today. So uh, it's been a lot of growth and a lot of fun. And cheers. How about yourself? Chris, thanks for having us. It's funny. I joined Harris Williams after having been a hospital consultant uh, with the advisory board company in the early 90s, I joined Harris Williams with the strident desire to remain a generalist and not get pigeonholed as a healthcare guy in 2000. It, suddenly thereafter, Turner started a healthcare group and then looked around and said, does anybody know anything about healthcare? And the, the last 20 years have been been really fun growth. And you know, like Jeff said, we've got 50 people now all focused on healthcare, some pretty good subsector talent and uh, intellectual capacity in, in addition to the, the execution stuff. And it's, it's been, fun to, uh, been fun to build the team. And you guys have really globalized the institution over the last few years. What have been some of the dynamics that that pushed you to to grow internationally? Yeah, I'd say, you know, we have realized that particularly in certain subsectors dealing with really global markets and access to buyers and, and sellers, et cetera, particularly in areas like med tech, med devices, pharma services, et cetera, you know, it's a real key part of our strategy. And so our uh, our teams in Frankfurt and London, you know, they're just they're just part of our team at this point. And when when I speak with private equity funds we work with, they're always complimentary of uh, the work that Harris Williams does with funds. What do you think is Jeff some of the the kind of key to how you've built that franchise, being known uh, for kind of healthcare private equity transactions? I think it starts or it started, you know, almost 30 years ago when the firm started with 
just doing some early deals and developing relationships with private equity firms and over the years staying close to those funds and funds generally as they have grown and growing with them and thinking about what are their unique challenges and opportunities that maybe make them a little different than other investor groups or corporates or, or strategics as the case may be. And just building on that that knowledge and that experience and those relationships and and developing a level of trust with them where I think, you know, they come to us time and time again and, and ask for our help as they think through issues, whether it's, you know, a, a straightforward sell side or whether it's thinking about other ways of sort of optimizing their portfolio or thinking about ways to to approach it more strategically. And I think is that that conversation and that dialogue has changed a lot over the years as well as that whole um, class uh, has gotten much more sophisticated. Yeah. You know, you guys are both based in Richmond, Virginia, right? We are. So you, you must Hot not. Other than Hot Bank. Yeah. yeah, which is great uh, that you've built it out of, you know, not a New York-based bank, but, you know, I assume most of your funds are based in New York and San Francisco and so forth. Uh, you must not miss the Richmond Airport lounge during this pandemic period. <laughs> That's right, and and we also don't miss flying through Atlanta to get to uh, to anywhere we need to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know you had a really busy 2020, like many of us in uh, in healthcare, particularly the second half. Um, you know, wanted to maybe talk through a few transactions and some dynamics that you're seeing in this market uh, that our listeners might be interested in. Uh, I, you know, I know one deal that you guys worked on was the transaction involving Ontario teachers investment in Envision. Was Envision a founder-owned business? Yeah, yeah, sure is. Uh, Dr. Tom Tuma uh, founded the business years and years ago and created a heck of a platform. We were introduced to to Dr. Tuma by one of his board members and knew the CEO of the business through mutual friends as well, and had the privilege of working with them in a deal that closed uh, the tail end of last year. And iCare has seen many different private equity funds invest in a variety of different uh, platforms and structures. You know, I'm kind of interested in the um, Ontario teachers dynamic of that transaction. You know, they're you know, kind of a different style of investor than many of the private equity funds that have historically invested in iCare. Was, how, how did that, you know, play out in the process? Was that attractive to the founder? And w- what are the dynamics of working with a kind of a, a large global pension fund manager versus a traditional private equity fund? Yes, the teachers team was a very attractive partner for Dr. Tuma and for and for Chris Carcani, the CEO. We worked with teachers for years, and they are very thematically focused, whether in healthcare or beyond. Our experience with them is that they are looking for very, very high quality opportunities in subsectors of different areas that they check off on, approve, and then go get. Uh, they had spent a lot of time in vision care and had come in runner up on a couple things very close to when. We started talking to them on uh, on Envision, and you know they they had their work done uh, on the sector and had identified Envision as a, a company that they wanted to prioritize, and and they they went at it very directly. Uh, they they had in addition to the relationship with us, they had some board relationships 
with some of Dr. Tuma's advisors, et cetera, and you know, just had a, a very, very collaborative set of conversations all the way around to identify the asset and pursue it and, uh, and get it done through a time period in COVID when the volume of that business had its ups and flows. And, and you know, that's a, a nice way of saying what, uh, what actually happened to the business and many other multi-site retail facing businesses in the March, April, May timeframe. But teachers did their work early pre-COVID and then we waited for the business to recover a bit, but teachers was there and, and did what they said they were going to do at the end of the day. It was really a great experience. And you know, I know many of the funds out there are pitching kind of an operational focus and things like that. Does an investor like teachers, you know, bring that to the table as well? Or how, how should a founder-owned business think about kind of working on growth with, with an investor like that? Yeah, uh, there are certainly private equity groups that, that have a, a real operational focus I would characterize teachers as as ones who are backing a management team to make a growth plan happen, and you know that I think that's why um, both Chris and Dr. Tuma were were fired up to partner with them. Is is uh, you know they've got plenty of capital to make more organic growth happen, uh, more de novos happen, more M and A happen, and they uh, approach that from a real a partnership perspective as hey we're we're here to make your growth hopes and dreams and plans happen. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see how that's uh, appealing to uh, to a founder that's executed in the past and has really kind of a vision for the future as well. For sure. And what is, uh, are there any different hold period dynamics for an investor like teachers? Is that appealing to the, to the founders there? Certainly. The idea of having longer dated, potentially pension fund investors, you know, it can can be attractive, although, and, and Jeff, you ought to kick in here too, but, you know, the lines between different kind of classes of private equity capital have blurred there, you know, whether you're talking about private equity funds or pension funds or family offices or, you know, some of the new technology around asset continuation vehicles, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to extend hold if you've got and also generate interim liquidity if, if you've got a, a growth asset uh, that has a, a longer period or, or, you know, more attractive growth for a longer period of time. Yeah, I guess one thing just to add that I agree with Jared, I think there are certainly some sellers, whether it's founders or, or others who like the idea of not having to start thinking about an exit within a couple of years or what that might look like. So if somebody can approach them and say, Hey, we've got a 10 year hold period, or we've got a longer dated fund or, you know, whatever it may be, I think in certain situations that can be, you know, positively differentiating. And then I think to Jared's point, I think from a, from an investor perspective, obviously there are lots of pros to having more flexibility from a hold period perspective, what that can mean from a, uh, an IRR perspective and, and how you think about that from a return perspective as well. So um, it is, it's certainly a topic that has gained a lot of traction. And, and as I'm sure you've seen, Chris, you know, there are a lot of folks out there who have gone out and either looked to get more flexibility within existing funds, or in some cases, raising new funds that may have, you know, longer hold periods or other dynamics to them that give the GP more flexibility. Yeah, I know we're, we are definitely seeing that in uh, with some of the clients we work with is uh, some of this, you know, cheers, you mentioned that kind of technology and gearing around um, continuation funds. Um, 
I think a few years back, you were involved in Ruffelstoke's continuation fund around uh, upstream rehab. What are some of the you know basics of a continuation fund from your perspective, and how do you guys get involved with advising a fund that's considering that with an asset? Yeah, uh, upstream's a great, uh, a great, and pretty early as the case. You know, as it, as it turns out, example of what a lot of people are talking about these days. You know, Revelstoke bought that business a number of years earlier grew it very, very nicely and wanted to get liquidity for um, the fund that it was in, but also didn't want to let it go and, you know, wanted to participate in in a future of continued growth. I mean, that Dave Van Name and that management team have done just an unbelievable job turning that from, you know, a, a nice middle market uh, physical therapy platform to, you know, arguably one of the the top two or three in the, in the business and, and, you know, really, really, sustainable organic growth, you know, same store growth, de novo growth, acquisition growth, just really substantial kind of three legs of the stool growth engine. And Revelstoke hired us to advise them on the different options out there. And they chose to do an SPV and go that direction for the reasons kind of structurally that that option exists, which is the ability to give the fund that an asset is in liquidity, but have a, either another fund or the GP itself uh, participate in the kind of the ups for that business for a longer period of time, bring in a new set of investors and let the the LPs kind of choose whether to uh, whether to stay in or, or get liquidity. So when they decide to kind of undertake that strategy, what does your role move to a kind of valuation advisory role or how do you help shepherd that along with the the LPs without kind of going out to market? How do you kind of land on the the valuation that, you know, fund, the initial fund is going to get uh, versus the continuation vehicle? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a key question and there are different ways to go about it. One can arrive at a value and establish that value and then build an investor book around that. One can also go to market and recruit a lead investor, uh, a lead LP investor, you know, at a certain value and build a book around that. There, are, uh, you know, the, the technology is evolving and has evolved a little bit. Where where we come in is advising on those different options and many other options around that, and the kind of technicality of um, what you need to do to make sure everybody is on the same page and and nobody steps in in holes that could possibly exist. And, you know, the valuations, one of them, and there, there are others with respect to making sure the, the different fund-to-fund uh, elements are, are done the right way. The other thing that we have done, and, and Chris, I don't know if you know this, but PNC Bank has bought a business, uh, bought a, business a couple of years ago called Six Point Partners that has the, the LP relationships and, you know, that side of the business that they can bring to bear in these advisories assignments with us so that if we do need to go out there and actively find LPs to, to either recruit a, a lead investor or, you know, build a book, we can, you know, we can do all of that as well. So they're essentially placement agents, but Correct. Have some specialized yeah. knowledge in this. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah. We're certainly seeing that as a huge, you know, outcome of some of the, t- 
2020 disruption, but also just the nature of some of these, you know, healthcare businesses that, you know, are growing in the fund, you know, sees, you know, when you look out to the market and see different investment opportunities, you see one right in your portfolio already there. And um, so it's certainly an interesting tool for investors right now. That's what I was going to say, Chris. I think what's interesting is in a world where it's much harder to find good businesses than it is to find capital, folks are looking out and saying, if I've got a business that I know and I like and a management team that I trust, and a growth plan that I continue to be supportive of, you know, why would I sort of let it go and have to go try to find some other business that checks all of those boxes as opposed to just reinvesting in this one? And I think that's a that's an easy story for the GP, but it's also becomes a really powerful story for the LPs, whether it's the existing ones or new ones, as they think about, um, you know, investing in, in a business like that. It makes perfect sense. You know, another trend that uh, that we're seeing, and I think you were involved in a transaction last year that's, you know, kind of exemplifies this trend is this concept of bringing together different practice management assets that are owned by funds. So, you know, oh, your firm and my firm have been very active over the last 10 years in creating a variety of different practice management structures. You know, we were talking about one in eye care earlier, dermatology, physical therapy, and dental. There's quite a few different assets out there that have been created and, you know, are generally performing well right now, uh, but may not have scale. And, uh, you know, I know wanted to talk for a minute about Midwest Dental transaction. I think you guys advised Midwest Dental, which uh, was a portfolio company of FFL, in uh, the sale of that platform to Smile Brands, which is a Griffin platform. Do you think that's going to be a trend for 2021 and beyond that we see more of those uh, platform combinations? Yeah, the short, the short answer is absolutely. I mean, I think there is, to your point, in, in all of the sectors you mentioned and some others, there are great consumer and other trends that, that underlie a lot of those businesses. And you've seen a, a tremendous amount of capital flow into those to back businesses and to, to start to grow them over time. I think it's a natural evolution in all of those sectors and they're all at different points in their evolution, but there is there is a natural point at which there's an opportunity for some larger, more sophisticated investors to begin looking at how do we create, you know, real platforms of scale defined as, you know, hundred million dollars or, or beyond, right? I mean, there's a lot of businesses that you think of as sort of 10 to 50 million in EBITDA, um, sort of true middle market in the way a lot of people think about it. But as you begin to get bigger, not just from an overall EBITDA perspective, but you begin to think about the infrastructure that's required to support those businesses and then the sophistication, particularly if there's a consumer aspect to it. Um, where you you want to bring in a maybe a different either a different type of investor or an investor that that can pull on some of the levers that maybe a you know a smaller fund may not have the expertise doing um, the ability to bring a couple of those businesses together it just makes a lot of sense and in many of those cases each of those businesses is doing 
something really well and but they're probably not at a size or sophistication where they can start to do all of it well so you think about can i bring a couple of these businesses together that maybe have you know the management talent or the geographic um, coverage or the sophistication and you know sales and marketing or advertising whatever it may be where you know one plus one can can really equal three i think you'll definitely see that continue and probably the pace of it accelerate as well. They're not easy deals to pull off though. <laughs> you know, you really have to make the right match. You know, what are, what are some of the dynamics that the kind of maybe the buyer for, in your example, Griffin, you know, are, are looking for to make sure that there's kind of a fit to be able to, you know, make three in your example, <laughs> so yeah. to speak. Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, I'd say a couple of things. One, there's got to be a level of comfort and knowledge of the particular sector, right? So Griffin had, has done a lot in dental historically, as well as just multi-site more broadly. So I think they felt very comfortable that they knew or know what a lot of the, the opportunities and the pitfalls can be if you're not careful. So I think they felt really good about that. I'd say two, you, you've got to feel probably maybe the most important thing is feeling like you, you have a management team or you, you are combining with a management team that, you know, can run a bigger, more sophisticated business. So, you know, smile brands is run by Steve built who had been a very, has been a very successful um, executive in the dental sector for many, many years running much, much larger businesses. And so th they knew that Steve, you know, has a playbook and has an ability to do that. And so sort of a no, no brainer to give him more to be able to leverage him across that. And so I think, I think those are probably the two most important. And then beyond that, I think it just, it does get a little bit to the sort of the level of sophistication of the infrastructure and the ability to manage not just the functional areas, but particularly I would say the relationships with the physicians, depending on the sector and what's involved in that, because that is no easy task and, and requires um, a lot of um, sort of hardcore assets to help manage it, but also a lot of soft skills that aren't always easy to find. Cheers. When you look at retail healthcare, you see more opportunity for these kind of combination transactions in, in any particular subsectors within retail healthcare. The thing we haven't talked about really is is the drivers for them for these potential combinations today versus what what we're hearing about a, a, a year ago, almost to the day. There was a moment, you know, a year ago when everyone kind of thought there was going to be a uh, a bit of a fire sale combination of uh, of some of these assets. That has that did not happen, thank goodness. And so these. These combinations are are being contemplated and are happening out of a position of strength, not a position of uh, oh gosh, how are we going to get through the next six weeks? By virtue of you know all the recovery that we've all experienced, I just wanted to mention that because this is you know kind of potential pro forma combination twenty twenty one, not looking backwards into the oh geez the sky is falling moment that we sure. were in uh, twelve months ago. Are there are there sectors back to your specific question? Are there sectors that we see more potential for combination? You know, there are a lot of them, man. There there, there really are. I mean, you know, dental. There, what Jeff? Forty private equity owned dental platforms. Derm. There are a lot. Vision. There are a lot. PT. You know, there are a lot. 
et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think it has to do with finding that special combination of leadership capabilities, ge- geography, et cetera, that Jeff kind of ticked through, uh, almost agnostic of which specific sector they're in. Yeah, that makes sense. So you guys have, you know, built amazing volume within healthcare and you're seeing the bidding activity of different funds. I won't ask you to talk to any specific bidders, but kind of, you know, in uh, when you're running a successful auction process, you know, what are you hearing from sellers that they want to see from, from bidders besides just a top bid? You know, because I think I'm privy to some of the kind of bidding activity near the tail end. And I see commonly that the investors, uh, buyers are in a similar band, right? And while you may have one that comes over the top significantly and sees value that they want to pay for that others didn't see, you know, you commonly have have a group of bidders in a, a very, very tight band at the top. You know, what are what are some of the important factors that um, that sellers are telling you, uh, you know, they're kind of looking for in a bidder these days, particularly in this you know, very hot market? Yeah, I mean, there's there's probably a few things. The, the one that that I that sort of jumps to mind and, and I think that we hear it may, may be surprising or, or maybe it's not, I don't know, but I, I think, I think sellers are much more concerned about how the business will perform after they have sold it than maybe people give them credit for. And so I, I think there is a, um, they, they want to see, you know, anytime one of our clients is, is selling a business, I think they want to see that business go to a good home and a home that is going to continue to support the vision and the growth of that business. And so I, what, what to me that means sort of tactically is, you know, when, you know, buyers or investors are looked to win in a process, you know, it's not just about, you know, price. I mean, obviously that, you know, there's certainty in those as well, but I think it's also just a, a level of, of interest and interaction that demonstrates this is really important to them. And I would say the, the level of dialogue that is going on between us and, you know, the small group of parties at the very end is much, much higher than it used to be. And it's much more sort of free flowing. And in, and in many cases, I would say there, there are principle to principle conversations that are happening more frequently than used to happen, you know, certainly five or even 10 years ago, where, you know, sometimes at the very end, you've got, you know, the, uh, you know, a couple of private equity firms or private equity and the principal at a strategic, having some direct dialogue, just to make sure that, that all sides are really comfortable with the other, not just from a certainty perspective, but from an alignment of sort of philosophy, right? I mean, everybody wants to be associated with winners, not just today, but but longer term, because that reflects well on everyone. So you say in that even if it's a fund to fund deal, the selling fund is interested in seeing success for that asset in the future as much as they are interested in receiving, you know, a premium price for it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, nobody wants to nobody wants to be known as the guys who sold a business to somebody that immediately went in the can, right? I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't reflect particularly well on them. Everybody in this business has got long, you know, long-term memories. And so you, you want to be known as somebody who helps 
you know, you're, you're a smart investor and you know how to invest the right way and grow a business, but that you also, you know, when you're, when you're leaving a business, you're leaving it the right way and you're leaving a good business that's going to go on and, and do great things as well. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, we're, we're running short on time. I did want to touch briefly on valuation, you know, um, in this low interest rate environment, uh, the evaluation of these assets can, continues to climb, it seems like, despite some of the scariness of what started almost a year ago with the mass disruption we saw in healthcare. Just kind of a couple specific questions around valuation. You know, we saw some uh, utilization numbers in healthcare plummet during the second quarter, during the stay-at-home orders and so forth. And I've seen some data that that Deferred utilization is pushing into 2021. So 2021 is going to be a big year. Is that dynamic going to drive higher valuations this year? Or what what are some other things, chairs, that are just kind of going to continue to support strong valuation in, in healthcare businesses? Yeah, gosh, there's a lot here. <laughs> and yeah, you're right about low rates. There is also our brethren in private equity you know, or, or looking to invest their dollars behind quality companies. And, you know, those situations, the, the A plus uh, assets, you know, or, or, you know, they're few and far between and, or there is more, what's the right way to say it, more demand for those than, than supply potentially now or at any given time. And that's, you know, it continues to move the curve from a valuation perspective. You know, your, your question about, kind of pent up demand and is that driving things you know I, I think i think the the knowledge that we've uh, by and large come out of the disruption of last year whether it's multi-site or you know retail facing stuff or whether it's more clinically acute inpatient outsourcing or what have you volumes have have come back and that has given people a real array of hope and and all that going into 2021, which is probably, you know, it's certainly a piece of uh, of what's driving valuations. But I, I just, I think the overall deal environment is is the, the bigger piece of that, honestly. Makes sense. Jeff, yeah. do you agree? Yes, I would totally agree with that. And I think to, to Chair's point, I think, you know, COVID has created a real point of differentiation among businesses where I think, you know, pre-COVID, you may have had people who said, looking at particular sectors, sort of like, well, if you're in a really good sector, am I in a good sector or is a business in a good sector or is it a really good business? And it was a little tougher to say maybe because, you know, you had the rising tide lifting all boats. I think what we've seen coming through and out of COVID is that there are some businesses that performed differentially better or worse. And investors are saying, I want to be back in those businesses that performed better. And that either because they've got, you know, a better model, better strategy, better management team. And so that what we've seen is, is a little bit of a bifurcation and those businesses that, you know, the A plus businesses, those that have performed well, you know, the valuation for those businesses, frankly, in many cases is higher than it was pre COVID because people are really focusing on a smaller number of businesses that are perceived to be the very best in the sector. And then for those that aren't perceived that way, there's, less interest, which I think then translates into, in, in some cases, you know, lower valuations. Now, having said that, I would say, generally speaking, valuations are still pretty high across the board, but I think it's been surprising for a lot of folks how good they have been for those really top quality companies. 
Yeah, makes sense. Well, guys, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Where can our listeners uh, find you? Jeff, uh, give us your uh, email address and then we'll have Cheers give his as well. Yeah, great. It's gsmith, G-S-M-I-T-H at harriswilliams.com. And I'm C. Porter. Good thing about that is you don't have to spell chairs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great. Thanks again, guys. Thank you for joining us. And to our listeners, thanks so much for listening. For more insight and analysis about healthcare private equity investments and today's changing healthcare and life sciences private equity transactions landscape, check out McDermott's Healthcare and Life Sciences News blog at healthcarelifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.